We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined as always by Darius. Last week, we discussed clock watching. That was the title of the episode. I expressed some concern toward the end of the, the episode that the Lakers were already checked out and looking toward the summer and we're not going to turn it around just based on what I'd you know seen on tape and just kind of the indications they'd given. And unfortunately this last week has very much uh shown that to be true. My man Darius wrote a great post today over at Form Blue and Gold with a simple two word title of It's Over. And when Mr. Yes and No is that definitive about anything, it's probably true. So We're going to have a lot of time to talk about what the Lakers should do going forward, what the summer is going to look like. I'm actually weirdly optimistic about the team, not just because I'm naturally kind of optimistic, but I I don't think that many of the mistakes that the Lakers made were fatal, even if they made a lot of mistakes this year. But what we're going to talk about in this episode is how the heck did the Lakers get to this point in the first place and what can we learn from it? So... We're going to start with the roster construction of the team. Obviously, the big move over the course of summer was signing LeBron. And then very quickly after that, they signed JaVale McGee, Lance Stevenson, uh, Rondo, and Beasley. And the whole idea, which Magic Johnson articulated a few times, was to surround LeBron James with playmakers rather than just outside shooters. Can I add something there, too? There was also this direct statement that ties into that idea about, you know, you can't beat the Warriors playing the Warriors game. And so we wanted to build a team this way, right? Like it was almost this idea of, yeah, like you're not going to be able to go up and down and bomb three pointers with the Golden State Warriors. What we're going to do is play a different style. Right, you can't out-warriors the Warriors, basically, was Magic's point. Now, I do think that that's true. The Lakers also aren't going to be out-anyone-ing anyone because they're not going to be in the playoffs. I'm not so much looking for a was-it-good-or-was-it-bad because I think that it's very obviously wasn't good. But what did we learn from... I remember saying over the course of the summer that I feel like I know less about this Lakers team than any other Lakers team that I can remember just because of all of the turnover just stylistically. It didn't work, but why do you think it didn't work? And what do you think Magic and Palenka can learn from the roster construction last year moving forward into next season? 
I think the idea of some of these players was still good, even if the specific players that they chose ended up not being the right direction. What do you think conceptually was good about, even if the specific players weren't it, what do you think they may have gotten right just from a conceptual basis? Well, I think a rim-running, lob-catching, pick-and-roll threat Mm -hmm. was a good idea. JaVale was the guy that they targeted to fill that role. You know, through the first month, month and a half of the season, you and I were right on this podcast basically saying that JaVale McGee may have been one of the most valuable pound for pound or dollar for dollar signings during the offseason. That minimum contract and yeah, all, all that. The the problem, bro, was like signing JaVale wasn't a bad idea. Depending on JaVale to be like your primary five, that was the bad idea. Yes. And I think that constructing the roster in a way where he was going to be basically your chief center and then going small as a primary option behind that rather than as sort of this change of pace that they can go to really hamstrung them. They rectified that by sort of lucking into Tyson Chandler. But imagine if Chandler doesn't get bought it out, the Lakers are probably never really go on that early season run in the same manner Mm -hmm. that they did because Chandler really helped turn around their defense. I think the idea of JaVale was a good one. I think if they could have supplemented the roster in a way where McGee could have been more in line with what he did for the Warriors, which was basically over the course of a full 82-game season, assuming good health, he might appear in 60 to 65 games. And when he does play, he's more in line of a 14 to 18 minute player, like a two shift a game player, maybe. If that, he didn't, I mean, he hadn't played 15 minutes per game for, I think, at least five seasons before this one. So yeah, ideally, I mean, maybe even less in that 12 to 15 type of range, you know, where basically he plays two shifts a game, maybe the first six minutes of each half, and then that's it. Like, dude, this never made sense. Like, so JaVale, I agree with your point that having that pick and roll rim running type of big guy who can finish over the rim, all great. And you get him on a minimum contract. That's great. Depending on him is a terrible idea. And I would argue that like part of my regret in trying to cover the team the best that I can is I gave them so much benefit of the doubt where when I saw this roster and how they approached the center position, you remember the discussions after LeBron signed and, and once every the roster got set, it was like, oh, well, LeBron must be playing center for a lot of minutes because otherwise this doesn't make sense at all. And that wasn't how it worked out at all. No, they ended up trying to play Kuzma basically at center. Like Boy. LeBron was functionally the biggest player on the floor, but he didn't have any of the center defensive responsibilities, which is problematic. And I think early in the season and during the preseason, especially when this was the approach that the Lakers were taking, I was taking the approach of, well, if you're going to play LeBron at center over the course of a full 82 game season for, you know, significant stretches of the game, why expose him to that pounding during the preseason? Like, That doesn't necessarily line up. But in hindsight, that was foreshadowing, right, for the approach that they were really going to take. I even remember that Instagram post that LeBron had where um, it, like, (laughs) read the Photoshop with, like, the biceps all big. And, like, Luke says he wants me to play more center this year. And it was sort of like a wink-wink, like, I'm on board with this. Right, right. And then the season starts, and there's Kyle Kuzma trying to guard Marc Gasol. You know, like like Jokic and and, yeah, and Jokic and every other Uh, big man. Right. So that wasn't what we thought it was going to be. So we have this team that aside from the center responsibilities, you also have Rondo and Beasley and Lance, the guys and and KCP who ended up taking up, I think, 27 ish million or so, maybe 26 if you take McGee out of that in a market where, you know, a guy like Julius Randle got the same money that Rondo got and you know, th- their approach to center is nothing short of perplexing in, in retrospect. And I, again, I gave them so much benefit of the doubt that like, okay, you know, LeBron must be doing this. Along those lines of giving the benefit of the doubt, there was that like, all right, well, you know, LeBron's thrived alongside certain types of guys. 
I'm curious to see how it looks, how it works, having playmakers, having guys who can create a shot for themselves and others. And here's the thing about all of those guys. Rondo shot the ball pretty well from three. Lance has shot the ball pretty well from three, both on career highs, right? But each guy that the Lakers signed, with the exception of KCP, so all of the new guys, none of them provide spacing. And that's a little bit different than three-point percentage. We saw in the Milwaukee game how defenses were just completely sagging off of Rondo. How defenses guard a guy has an impact on everything else, and none of the guys that the Lakers signed to go alongside LeBron James space the floor. Like, we talk about this with Kuzma. He doesn't shoot well, but you have to respect him. You have to actually go out there and guard him. And so the guys that they added, while being playmakers, they did not provide that floor spacing. And I think that that was probably the biggest issue that the Lakers had on offense this year. What Aside from JaVale, what's your take on the impact of those other guys this year? Well, yeah, I think the negative impact that you mentioned regarding floor spacing and this non-level of gravity, right? They're like anti-gravity that that's problematic because the Lakers actually didn't address spacing in any of the other areas either. So just from a roster construction standpoint, they basically swapped a stretch big center in Brooke Lopez for a rim-running, non-floor spacing center, a lob threat center in JaVale McGee. They did not replace that floor spacing that they lost from that key position in any of the other acquisitions that they made during the offseason. And so hindsight tells you that, okay, well, if you're going to get rid of Brooke Lopez, that's fine if maybe you're going to then, if like your key wing acquisition is maybe more of a sharpshooter, like a Wayne Ellington type, or instead of KCP, then they really pushed hard for J.J. Redick. Oh, I would have loved Redick. I feel like KCP is kind of a LeBron tax or clutch tax. So, you know, he hasn't been good this year, but I kind of view him as someone they had to sign in order to get LeBron to ink. Like, that's part of the deal. Well, also, too, I think that they saw a really good version of KCP to close the season. So, So I think that that influenced their thinking on what they were getting with him even more than you're associated with LeBron. Like, just because... A month and a half or two months in to the season, KCP is already on the trade block, right? So if you're worried about alienating Clutch or Rich Paul or LeBron James, then why is he in trade talks a month and a half into the season? I actually think that his second half performance and sort of that idea of a mid-level sized contract was probably as appealing to the Lakers as anything else within the idea of what they were getting with KCP. I think in an ideal world, they probably would have flipped KCP for a like-sized contract for a better fitting piece. Big picture. Like, I think he would have been part of the Ariza trade. I think that the Lakers would have loved to do that. I also think KCP and Clutch would have loved to do that. It's funny that, you know, they wanted the money, but, and nobody else would have given him $12 million, by the way, in that market. And then when he wasn't getting the playing time and lost his starting position very early on, they wanted him to be moved. Within that idea, there were a lot of chemistry and culture issues. I, I want to talk about the one-year deals. This is something that I think really grates on the culture of the Lakers. And I actually want to do an episode with you going forward, just strictly about the culture of the Lakers. But what ended up happening and how we got here, and it, again, it drives me crazy to see the national shows and all that being like, oh, the kids weren't ready. Byron Scott was on freaking The Jump oh, the other man. day talking about, yeah, man, talking about, oh, the kids aren't ready. They don't know what it takes and this and that. It's like, but what ended up happening with this season is the guys who really fell apart were those guys on those one-year deals. What is your take? You're very good at putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And what was your take on kind of how the the culture and chemistry of this team fell apart? So I think the one-year deal thing is sort of a significant play within the context of who the specific players were. Think back to last season, actually. Andrew Bogut was there on a one-year deal. They traded for Brooke Lopez, who was in the final year of his contract. 
Corey Brewer was acquired as part of the Lou Williams trade, like at the trade deadline the season before, and he was entering into the last year of his contract. And if you remember, there was that big sort of meeting, and we referenced it on our last podcast, where the veteran guys were sort of, are we going to be here next year? The young players knew that their names were going to be thrown into trade discussions, right? That was right around the time of all the Paul George stuff. And Paul George is going to be a Laker the following year. And free agent X, Kawhi Leonard, on down the line, right? And this idea that no one sort of was standing on solid ground with the team led to this, I don't want to say a rebellion, but some open hostilities that got pushed back towards the head coach and the front office. And they had to have that sort of airing of grievances meeting. Isn't this, though, like part of constructing the roster with like so so you're punting cap space forward. And again, I want to do a show on this because I don't think that how long the Lakers have done that is healthy for the culture. I think it really strips the culture to do that year after year after year in hopes of signing a max guy and then a second max guy. But when you are operating within that framework that's known going in. Yes. Like, you, the guys know this is a one-year deal. They know the Lakers are trying to sign a max guy. And aside from the spacing issues and all of the technical on-court stuff, what's bothered me most is how much this group of guys has quit. And and all of what you're speaking to of them not being on solid ground is, is well taken, and I understand why they would be in that position. But it's not a surprise for anyone. And to me, these guys quit, Darius. Well, like, the, they, just let me interject here, because the point I was going to make is that, and I don't mean to make this a direct comparison and call the guys who were on this year's team, bad guys by any means. But Brooke Lopez last year, genuinely good guy, good locker room guy. Corey Brewer. And he was frustrated too. He He was frustrated. He was. Remember that? Like he was frustrated and he played through it. He was, but that's one of those solid veteran guys who I think takes like true pride in where professionalism is very high up on the totem pole in terms of like like personal values to that guy. Right. Right? And like I'm gonna be who I'm gonna be no matter no what. No matter what, right? Like and working through that, I'm gonna wear that as sort of a badge of honor. You know what I mean? Corey Brewer, same way, right? He's gone from team to team to team and ten day contracts this year and everything else and everything you hear about Brewer. Smile on his face, just good, hardworking guy, great teammate type of player, right? Now, compare those guys, you know, and this is going to be negative, I know, even though I said I don't want this to be negative, but here I am. Rajon Rondo, Michael Beasley, Lance Stevenson, JaVale McGee, these are guys who carry a certain amount of baggage with them, right? And I feel like that same sort of competitive spirit that the front office and Magic Johnson specifically referenced when it came to these specific players, and Rob Palinka mentioned it too during the introductory press conferences, that that same sort of competitive spirit and what you and I talked about, you know, during the offseason as like, you know, these guys are sort of a-holes, right? Like, they're guys who are going to get after you some. I think that in really positive situations, that can be a real asset. But with this year's Lakers team, it turned negative against them. And, you know, there's a reason why Beasley is off the team now. And I feel like there's also a reason why Rondo is back in the starting lineup now. You you know, (sighs) um, and the same with JaVale McGee, right? That these guys, and there hasn't been anything public. This isn't anything that any of us are reporting. You know what I mean? At least I'm not. That I could imagine scenarios where there's enough, if not chirping, then lackadaisical, lackluster, uninspired play as veteran guys who maybe did not carry themselves in the same way that I just referenced Brooke Lopez and Corey Brewer might have carried themselves last season and as a team as a group that is supposed to be in it together 
And we'll talk about this more when we talk about Luke Walton, because I think Walton, just as those players deserved individual credit last season for sort of pushing through that, I think Walton probably did a better job with that group or that group was more receptive to Walton's messaging than this group has been. And I think that it's gone poorly specifically because these guys, when they sort of haven't gotten their way, haven't pushed through in the same manner that they needed to in order to play at their, at if not at their best, then near their best for long enough stretches to really help the team. You know what bothers me most about that and concerns me is that I would expect Magic Johnson to get that right. As, you know, he's not a dork like you and me talking about basketball from the outside. He spent years and years in basketball locker rooms and should have a, a deeper understanding of those sorts of dynamics and like just know things that you and I don't know and can't know, right? And the fact that he missed so badly on a locker room dynamic and what it would be and how those guys would react. Because again, these guys were sold as gritty, tough competitors that were going to be able to take down the Warriors. And the funny thing is, is that if they faced the Warriors and they were like, those guys would be up to that challenge. I understand it from that, but everything has a good side and a bad side to it, right? And would these guys push through adversity or would they fold and not react in the way that you were explaining a moment ago? And it's very clear they did the latter. And that's what bothers me the most is that like Magic Johnson of all people shouldn't be missing that. Yes, I agree with you there. I also think that this is where being a great player, a truly great player, I think you can have your blind spots. To certain things. It's very much like, um, you remember when uh, Magic went to Philly and he gave that sort of pregame talk? <laughs> the Ben, right? The Ben Simmons y thing? And yes. All that? Yeah. But Magic went hard at, you know, these guys are professionals and quit treating them like babies. And there's always going to be trade rumors. And you saw so and so just got traded and they got to move their families. And it was sort of like this defiance. Right. Yeah. And, and and he had said the day before at a Michigan State game yes. that uh, he was gonna give them a well, hug. Remember that? Among friends. And then, like the very next so day. So he was among friends there at Michigan State. And that was magic talking. Uh -huh. at Michigan right. Not State. Not Irvin, right? That was Irvin. Yeah. In Philly. Yeah. 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 And Irvin put on the game face a little bit and basically put everyone back in their place. A little bit or at least that's what he tried to do the blind spot stuff that i'm talking about is more like how would you know what it's like to be in trade rumors yes magic johnson was never in a trade rumor magic johnson in his second season after winning the championship his rookie year and winning finals mvp right got his coach fired right like he walked in after having a conversation with his head coach, then went to media availability and basically said, I can't do this anymore. I can't play in this system. I can't play for Paul Westhead. They should just trade me. <laughs> right? They were on a five-game five game winning streak when that happened, too. And and yeah, and what did Jerry Buss say? Yeah. <laughs> what did Jerry Buss do? I'm keeping the player. You're fired. And Westhead was gone. Yes. Yes. Right? So, look, Magic Johnson was my favorite player growing up. Magic Johnson will always be my favorite player, right? People are like, mm -hmm. oh, Kobe Bryant and this, this, that, and the other. Like, I'm from a different era, right? So, Magic will always be my dude, and Showtime will always be my team. That said, it's like, you were talking about Darius, you know, you're pretty good at putting yourself in other people's shoes. Like, so, in this case, I'm like, word? Magic Johnson, <laughs> you you know you're gonna talk to these guys about yeah. about manning up and pushing through trade rumors. LeBron was not nearly as callous as Magic was mm -hmm. in his when yeah. Magic gave those comments to reporters in Philly. But LeBron was very similar, not similar in tone, but in message basically. Like you know, like you got to push through. These things happen. Trade rumors happen. Guys' names get thrown into the mix, yada, 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 right? 
LeBron would never know anything about that. Besides, like, maybe confidants or friends that he has around the league who were maybe, like, role players who ended up getting shipped And out. that's still secondhand, man. Yeah, it's still that's not still not thing. you, yeah. right? Players like LeBron and Magic Johnson, they will never know what it's like to have your name floated. They will never know what it's like to not feel wanted by your organization. They will never know what it's like to be this idea that you're going to be flipped for someone better than you, right? You're Magic Johnson, man. Like, yeah. when you were playing, there was no one better than you. You're LeBron James. Like, for the past 10 years, there has been no one who's better than you. So it's like this idea that these guys could really like, they can have empathy. They can show right. a certain amount of understanding, but they will never fully grasp it because they'll never fully know it. And they'll never go through it. Yeah. And that's just, and again, like, I don't want to sound like I know anything about this. I'm like, this is me just being like, okay, well, let's look at the chess pieces and see how all of this would really go. So when you're talking about the culture of the team, look at where leadership is sort of placing its priorities. Look at how they're willing to sort of show their hand in terms of we've got literally the king, LeBron, who we're going to protect at all costs. And pretty much everyone else is pawns, right? Now, you may value some of these guys differently, Ingram and... Lonzo. Yeah, some are bishops and yeah, knights and right, rooks, but, right? But the whole point of all of them is like to protect the king, right? And what they're really yeah. trying to do is swap those guys out and get them to the other side of the board to turn them into queens, right? The running mate for LeBron James. So, look, right. like how that impacts culture, we will never know for sure from the position that we I think we saw in. the result, though, but man. But on the court, we definitely did see... Things weren't clicking, and it did not. I I don't want to say it did not take much, be because we're going to get to this part in terms of the injuries and everything that happened. But this team, they got hit from the side, right? They didn't get punched in the mouth per se. They got hit from the side and they got knocked off course, and they were not able to find their way back. And I think that that speaks to the culture, quote unquote that was sort of embedded in the fabric of this specific team and this specific group of guys in this season, knowing that it was going to be a bridge season. And it's very easy to then just say, oh, well, this is just a bridge season. Well, then just let me just step to the side then. And whatever happens, happens. Like there just wasn't that investment. The players who were invested, Brandon Ingram was, was invested. Cal Kuzma was invested. These guys are on rookie contracts, man. They're trying to make their names. These other guys, some nights, yeah, some nights, no. In terms of how things were handled from a leadership standpoint, I feel like the easiest way to lose guys is to have a lack of empathy. Maybe things were different when Magic was coming up. And again, you beautifully illustrated how the comparison doesn't really work when you're Magic Johnson or LeBron James, two guys who find themselves in trade rumors because they never were. But even if those guys can't relate directly to that experience, just demonstrating some degree of understanding that it's not fun, that it's not great, even if you don't understand it directly, could have gone a long way. And I think that a lot of guys were kind of lost off of that. And I think like the team became very fractured, and that's most prevalent in how they defended. Bonds was a really good defender. One really good point guard defender is not the difference between you being a top 10 defense and either the worst or second worst defense in the NBA after that. I feel like the locker room issues really bled out onto the court and guys just stopped doing the things that they didn't really want to do, you know, and, and defense is one of those things where you have to be really connected in order for it to work. It's more of a team thing than it is a group of five individuals and they just lost that focus and degree of commitment. I think a little bit of empathy for their situation would have gone a long way. 
Before we continue, a quick word from our sponsor, Ethos Life Insurance. Life can be stressful, but getting life insurance shouldn't be. That's why there's Ethos. Ethos is a modern kind of life insurance that's super fast, incredibly affordable, and very uncomplicated. At GetEthos.com, there are no medical exams for policies under a million dollars. No hours of paperwork or meetings with pushy representatives. It only takes 10 minutes to apply, and you can rest assured knowing you've taken steps to protect your family. And in most cases with Ethos, you can have that peace of mind for less than a cup of coffee a day with no hidden fees. Having life insurance can free you from stress. Getting life insurance shouldn't cause it. Discover how uncomplicated life insurance can be at Ethos. Get your free instant quote and submit your complete application in minutes. Just go to getethos.com. That's E-T-H-O-S, getethos.com. So what can Magic and Palenka, and I'm assuming that Luke's gone, and we'll get to Luke in a moment, but what can the leadership, and you know what, I, I keep doing this. I always leave Jeannie out, and I think a lot of people who are covering the team are doing that, and she's part of it, man. Like, you you can't be, like, an owner and not a piece of the puzzle, not a major piece of the puzzle. It's easy to zero in on Magic and Palenka and Luke, but, like, Jeannie's in this, too. What can this organization learn, not just from the roster construction, but also the cultural issues that the Lakers face this season? I think the roster construction stuff is easier to pinpoint. So if you want to gloss over that first, we totally can. Before we hopped online, you you and I were sort of going back and forth about this idea about the Lakers sort of tried to reinvent the wheel. Did you want to share your thoughts on that really briefly? Bro, just like LeBron James has been playing a certain way for 15, 16 years now, and it works really, really well. And like when you bring a guy in, they should be trying to maximize LeBron James. I love the chess analogy that you gave with the pawns and queens, and I chimed in with the bishops and rooks and knights. But all of them are in support of the king, right? And they all do something a little different that fits, that all of it works together to form the game of chess. The Lakers tried to build around LeBron, but they tried to do it in a different way. I call it, you know, reinventing the wheel. Like, they didn't have to get cute, especially with, like, the Lakers got good young players on rookie contracts. They've got cap space for a second max guy. They didn't need to try and go about how to do this differently than they did. And that's before you even get to the personality stuff and all of that. So that's what I mean by the reinventing the wheel thing. Like build the same type of team around LeBron that has always worked. There was no reason to change that up. Yeah, I just think, right. And and so when we're getting into the specifics here, you know, how about you surround LeBron with shooting and defense and then Mm -hmm. figure the rest out, especially if you know that you're grooming Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball to sort of be playmaker type guys. And if you envision them being a part of even your short-term future, which I think the Lakers did, if not the long-term future, then why not even supplement some of their individual talents by flanking them with players who complement them as well, who are also the same types of players that will complement LeBron James, right? Like Brandon Ingram could use more shooters. Lonzo Ball could use more shooters. The whole team could use better defensive players. Why not target those guys? And sorry, this is going to take me on a little bit of a side note rant here, but it was something that I had messaged you about earlier today when we were talking about sort of like what today's pod would look like. But how much does the analytics or the analytics office within the Lakers play a part in this? Right. Do the Lakers have an analytics yeah, department? It's my understanding they have people who work in this area. I'd have to look them up. So. They're probably in the media guide. I suppose I should have done this beforehand. But sorry, I say that kind of sarcastically because I'm I'm not entirely sure there's a like fully developed department there. Like I I don't know. I'm just making the point that this idea that like, oh, we're gonna sign Rajan Rondo because he can You know, he's a veteran leader and playmaker. But also, I think that this team or front office thought that he was still good on defense. They thought the same thing about Lance Stevenson. That's inexcusable, though. Like, you can't not know that. I'm just saying simple looks at, you know, on-off numbers and lineup data and even catch-all metrics like, you know, defensive real plus minus will tell you where these guys rank defensively within the context of the league. Anyways, so when you're talking about like Magic and Rob and even Genie and 
Luke Walton. I also think that the support staff, that matters here too, right? Like Rob Palinka is fond of saying that he wants to be able to ask questions and bring more people to the table and get input from a variety of places. And so I'm assuming that there are people in the organization who will be able to approach him and offer ideas or he's casting a wide net. And I would hope the same is true of Magic Johnson, who came into this role as someone whose management style was supposedly based off of like gathering input from a variety of places and hopefully using various thought partners within the organization in, in order to come to the best decisions. And so when we're talking about... I, I, I don't think... Hold on. Let's, let's linger on that point sure. real quick. I don't think that's the case here. I don't think like... His statue's outside the building, man. Like, it's one thing to delegate to Andrew Friedman and Farhan Zaidi and all of the analytics people that they've had at the, with the Dodgers and all of the people that do that sort of stuff. Or with Fatburger or movie theaters or Starbucks. All of that, like, that's different than basketball. Magic, think of Magic's, like, self-identity, right? Like, Magic, is Magic going to listen to the different people in the front office about basketball. Like, it's a very simple question, but I think it's a valid one. Like, he's going to listen to them about baseball or, you know, burger chains, movie theaters and all that. Is one of the people, is Ryan West or Nick Mazzella or any of the other guys that are in a supporting role in that front office going to say, you know, Magic, I really think you should do this. And Magic's going to be like, Oh, yeah, I, I really, really agree with you, even though I'm one of the greatest players in the history of the game and my statue's outside of this building. But no, you know what? You've con- talked me into it. I, I'm not entirely convinced that that's what the dynamic is. I'm not convinced either. I have heard things, though, that, and I think that you've heard things too, that would probably go against the same idea that there are players in the past who he wanted to maybe draft and didn't just as I'm sure that he has pushed for players or a player or two that he wanted that maybe other people did not want. I think we need to understand, too, that Magic is still, and this isn't an idea I think that is lost on either of us, and it's certainly not lost to the people who are in my Twitter mentions, um, especially the ones who aren't too fond of Magic Johnson, but he is relatively new in this role as well. And so I don't know... If Magic is going to be so dogmatic that he's not going to listen to other people who are smart and who he's either hired or he's allowed to maintain certain positions of power within the organization, those people have jobs for a reason. And based off of his management style in general, I think he's he's at least going to be interested in what their input is, even if he decides to go in a different direction. I think he's learning as he's going, and he's probably going to continue to get a better feel for where he needs to stick to his guns and where he needs to keep a more open mind. And I'm not willing to sort of go in any one direction as to making up my mind that he's, oh, well, magic's going to be this way now. You know what I mean? I agree with that. I also think that in the vein of what can be learned from this, from Magic in the front office. And and Magic is the main guy, right? Like, I, I don't want to act like he's the only guy whose shoulders this is on, but he's where the buck stops in terms of the basketball decision. So when I say Magic, I mean Palenka and whomever is involved in his process. But this went so poorly, and his concept for how this was going to go was so much worse than how it actually ended up happening, with injuries factored in, of course, that... I'm hoping that this allows him to listen to outside opinions. This is my impression that he doesn't listen to other people. I'm not in the in those conversations. That's my impression as someone who is around the team in an outsider type of sense, but not entirely just sitting on my couch at home, right? Uh, that he, That he's not listening to people. I'm hoping that this makes him more open to it. You know, me as well. I think too... Whenever something goes like this, there's always going to be a certain amount of self-examination that is going to happen naturally. And then someone typically gets blamed. <laughs> and then change is typically happens. 
and then you go about your business again. And it's, and I think this is probably, there's probably no better time than now to talk about Luke Walton, right? Yeah, let's do it. Because I'm still not sure that Luke is going to get fired, but I think that that's the general feeling amongst a lot of people. Mark Stein just recently had a report that many in coaching circles feel like he's going to lose his job after the season. So if Luke does lose his job, I'm wondering, is he going to be fully turned as the scapegoat? And things went wrong because the coach was bad. Right, because I think that's this the is worst what bad case. organizations do. By the way, dude, this is what bad organizations do, whether it's basketball or otherwise, is that it's like Lord of the Flies or Monsters Are Due on Maple Street type of stuff, where you start like turning on the weakest person and constructing a narrative in which they were the reason that we're bad. And like Luke is part of the problem, but I I really hate the scapegoating because it goes way beyond just that. Yeah, and we'll get into some of the areas that Luke has been, you know not been up to standard this season. But I will just say that if I have one concern about the idea that Luke Walton is going to be let go, it's that. It's that the firing of the coach serves as cover. Problem solved, yeah, right? That, <laughs> as you dust off your yes, hands. Yes, you, and that it sort of alleviates this, this idea that we need to self-examine as the people who are hired decision makers. Right. And that would be my one concern. Right. And so, look, if firing Luke Walton then goes hand in hand with getting more shooters and targeting more defense, then and there's a certain amount of whatever happens next is sort of this acknowledgement that the thing that we just did to build this team did not work. And so now we're going to change up. That would be better for me as an outsider to sort of examine and say, okay, like maybe they have learned. The irony of all that might just be that that type of team would probably be so much better suited for Luke Walton to coach. But that's neither here nor there. Let's get into Luke, though. Sure. So, yeah, man. So with Luke, I want to discuss it via this backdrop. And, and also tie the front office into it in that we were getting reports, I think it was seven games into the season, that Magic Johnson pulled Luke into his office and berated him about the offense and, and just how things were going in general. Now, the fact that Magic did that, I have zero problem with that at all. He's his boss. He has every right to do that. And if the, as Brad Turner reported at the time, his critique that the Lakers don't have a quality offensive system in place is absolutely correct, in my opinion. So all of the fact that it happened, I have no problem with. I think that's needed. My problem is the fact that it got out. And we've been talking since even before the season that Luke was, if things didn't go well, Luke was going to be the guy who shouldered most of the blame for that. And that's exactly what it looks like is going to happen. My concern is that if Luke was never Magic's guy. Luke shouldn't have been the coach at the beginning of this season in the first place. And that's where Jeannie comes in, right? Like, she prides herself on being hands-off, but you can't, you're either hands-off or you're not, right? On something like this, if the head guy that's running your basketball operations wants to go in a different direction with a different type of guy, and you stand in the way of that, and that doesn't work out, like, there's some culpability on on Jeannie there as well, right? So, with we can get into Luke and all of that, but I'm just curious on kind of your thought process on the position that Luke was in before we get into the specifics of the job that Luke did. Yeah, so I, I do not think Luke was put in a position to succeed with the roster. We talked about the roster construction already. I also think that there's <laughs> there's this funny idea, right? So where did Luke come from? Luke came from Golden State. Remember that quote that I said earlier that Magic Johnson said? You know, we can't beat Golden State playing Golden State's game. I'd never even made the connection. That's, yeah. So, yes. it's very interesting, right, that here you have a guy who came from Golden State, and the idea was we're sort of going to play like Golden State, and now Magic Johnson is saying we can't beat them playing that style. So we're going to build a roster that's really not going to play that style. But we're going to have him coached by a guy who came 
from that style. It's I would also argue that Luke never really implemented that he, style here. He by really, the way. but I do understand. The he point really didn't. It was more of like I would argue Luke's much more of like a Phil Jackson and old school type of coach. Whenever yeah. you know, if Luke is or is not fired, I will write about Luke at some point once the Lakers off season comes because I think that there's this perception of Luke. Luke is certainly, I think, a player's coach in a lot of ways and he is young and he is personable and I think that he can make connections with players, certain players in certain ways. I also think though that Luke has a little bit of that old school mentality in him of I favor the veterans, my young players are on short leashes. I will sort of admonish my players in certain ways in the press. He has also gone to the, like, we weren't ready to play card and yada, yada, yada. He hasn't, like, called his players soft or anything like that. Like, he hasn't gone full Byron Scott or anything. But there have been hints of that. So Luke's an interesting guy. I do not think that he was set up to succeed here. I also don't necessarily think that the front office's support of him has been as strong as it needed to be. I actually think that the quote that you said earlier, like this is what bad franchises do in terms of scapegoating the coaches and and sort of targeting the weakest person and then putting the blame on them and then going from, well, from, from there. If you remember some of Jeannie's comments in interviews that she's done, she does not like instability of, you know, like we've had X number of coaches and X number of years and, right, so they cycled through them. Phil Jackson left. And Is then, this what organizational stability looks like? I, I don't know if it's what organizational <laughs> stability looks like. I think that there's a certain amount of grasping for it, which honestly, I see both sides of that, right? Like, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing when you've been unstable that you try to latch on to something that you believe in and say, like, we're going to seek stability in, I agree with that. In going this route. I also don't know, though, if grasping at that and seeking that, that stability, if it's a direct conflict with maybe the wants of other powerful people in the organization, if in the long run that's what's best for the organization, you know? like So there's a lot of different ways that you can go with that. I don't think it's necessarily bad. I don't think it's necessarily good either. What you want is everyone on the same page and everyone believing in a person and you want everything moving in the same direction and everything in lockstep. And that's roster construction, that's ownership, that's management, that's the coach. It all needs to be going in the same direction at the same pace and everyone is on the same page. And this year that started to fray more than what it has in Luke's two previous seasons. And that spells trouble for him. The roster is so different too. Like, just think of the nature of the roster the last couple of years, his first two years. This was basically college plus, right? You had all of the key guys pretty much were kids that they don't come with, you said baggage earlier with the guys, the older guys, but also like those older guys also know like the way of the league and if like Luke is full of it in some areas, they're going to be able to sniff that out in ways that kids can't. And so this was somewhat of a litmus test for Luke is can he get through coaching a veteran team? And it didn't go particularly well considering how they reacted. Yeah, it's, to it's interesting, though, because I'm guessing he got along fine with Brooke Lopez and Corey Brewer, like I said, you know, that mm -hmm. it may have just been this specific group of veterans. I don't know, Matt. I remember Brooke Lopez crying on the bench in Orlando because he was so frustrated. And Lopez, you know, pushed through that and, and played well throughout the rest of the season. That speaks to me more to Lopez's frustration tolerance. Julius Randle was upset for large portions of last season. He pushed through it, right? So, like, it just speaks to a guy's, like, frustration tolerance. And, you know, I, your point about professionalism is, is well made. But, like, Luke was irritating those guys, too. They just were able to handle it better. And now your coach irritating you is one thing. But like when I see a guy like Brooke Lopez crying at the end of the bench, a guy who's been in the league for a decade and who's always been a pro, he's so frustrated with how things are being handled. And it's not like he was with a great, a great franchise, right? 
plenty of bad stuff happened to him with the Nets. He's crying on the end of the bench. That tells me there's something wrong with the situation that guys who have maybe a little less professionalism or frustration tolerance aren't going to handle the same way. Yeah, and I think that that's fair. And I think when we, whenever we do a real deep dive into Walton and if he is let go, like we'll look at moments like that and how he was able or not able to connect with certain players or the majority of the players or even half the players, that that's going to be something that's written in his epitaph, right? The, right. the interesting thing is, is I actually think that long-term Luke Walton is probably going to be a good coach in this league. This is going to be a learning experience for him. And much in the way that you might see like a player like D'Angelo Russell or even Julius Randle, who was already making strides last season in L.A., but has really found a certain amount of consistency this year, in ter- at least in terms of stuffing the box score. And with Russell, there's been a real maturity that there's real growth that is happening or has happened for guys after they've left their first experience with the league. I think the same can be true for head coaches. We've seen that with different coaches who have found success in their second or their third stop. Like a guy like Terry Stotts comes to mind or even a guy like well, like Nate McMillan now who is really thriving in Indiana after he had a good but not great stint in Portland, right? And a much better team than the teams that Luke Walton has had in Los Angeles in Portland too. You know, Brandon Roy and LaMarcus Aldridge and guys like that. So long-term, I think that Luke is going to be fine, whether it's in Los Angeles or not, is another question. If I could ask you a question though about Luke, is, is there one or two things that you think were particularly handled poorly this year? I think that the formulation of his coaching staff was handled poorly at the beginning of it, and I think that the primary issues of that were most prevalent over the course of this season. They came to light more than anything else. The ability to know who you are and your own strengths and weaknesses is one of the most valuable things that you can have in life, and if Luke sees himself as that Phil Jackson type, and I agree with you that that is the type of cloth that he's cut from, he's not necessarily an X's and O's wizard, then have your takes winner. Find your Ron Adams, your guys like that. And the fact that he filled out his coaching staff with such young and inexperienced guys that you're putting yourself in a position where there's nobody there that knows what they don't know, right? Like everybody's so young and so inexperienced that something's going to pop up that is unforeseen by any of them just because you haven't gone through it before. And so him not putting together a veteran coaching staff while being a young coach, I think is one of the poorest things that he handled. He tried to change the offense this year because of the fundamental differences in the roster construction. The difference in spacing between Brooke Lopez and JaVale McGee is obvious. I would also argue that Julius Randle, in a roundabout way, provided spacing as well. Julius was usually at the top of the key for the Lakers. He does this for the Pelicans too. And he would be the guy responsible for running delays, right? When they the point guard brings the ball up, passes to Julius at the top of the key, sets a down screen for the guy in the corner. You get nice like five out type spacing, at least on that side of the court. You can be doing the same thing on the other, but Julius can make decisions off of that. And even though he wasn't a particularly good shooter, he was able to eat up the space. He could dribble from the top of the key and get to the basket and score for himself or pass the ball to somebody else. So you could effectively space the floor. You could put Julius at the top of the key. I would also argue that he and others, even like Zubats is an example, but Randall's shooting like 2.3 three-point attempts this per game this year with the Pelicans, and he only shot 0.9 as a career high with the Lakers, that he could have been empowered to take more of that. So with the lack, lack of spacing that the Lakers had going from those two guys in Lopez and Randall to what they've had this year. Luke tried to change his offense. Remember he, and they still run a lot of those UCLA one, four high type of sets, a lot of horns type action. They run their stagger screen play. They rarely get beyond the first step of it. And what it's always struck to me and the way it's always come across to me is that is as someone who like read about how offense is supposed to work, but doesn't have 
the knowledge of how it's supposed to go internalized yet. So like they're reading it, but they don't understand it yet. And that's how the Lakers offenses seem to me over the course of these three seasons. The presence of LeBron has just kind of illuminated issues that were already there. Do you, do you think that there are certain things particular to this season, those one or two things that you asked me about that are, are particular to this or, or do you think it's more of something that's always been there, but it's more come to no, light this year. I, so I agree with you about the coaching staff construction. I thought that it comes off to me that he just tapped. Now, every head coach does this, so I don't want to make it sound like this isn't what, what happens. But because Luke was so inexperienced, I think that this is magnified some. Luke tapped a bunch of guys that he knew from different places it just so happened that none of those guys had a lot of experience in the league. And the one guy who did is Brian Shaw, who did not have a great head coaching experience himself when he coached the Nuggets and was basically Phil Jackson's like lead assistant for all of those years where really in the background it was like Tex Winner. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So it, let's just say that like I like Brian Shaw fine. I just don't know if he's like lead assistant material and it would have been nice for the Lakers to to have um, a more experienced staff around Luke Walton. Um, in terms of some of the things that he handled this year, I just don't know if he pushed the right buttons with the veteran guys. A recent, but I think a big example was how Rondo's play sort of went in the tank after the trade deadline and they acquired Reggie Bullock and Rondo went to the bench and that just happened to coincide with the day after or the game after he had hit a game winner in Boston. So I'm not sure if he pushed the right buttons with those guys in order to maintain buy-in. I've always said, said this to you that, you know, I think X's and O's are super important. But I think one of, if not the most important thing a coach does or a head coach does in any sport, but in the NBA especially, is generate and maintain buy-in, right? Like you have to sell your vision and and keep guys um, focused on that and keep them wanting to go out and do what you're asking them to do because... You could have the best X's and O's in the world, but if your guys don't buy in and don't want to play hard and don't want to do the things that you're asking them to do, none of it is going to matter. So I thought that this year, especially, he didn't really connect with his team the way that he did last year. I think a young coach, when coaching veterans, really needs to bring it from an X's and O's perspective because they almost by definition aren't going to have the gravitas to they're not somebody that like Luke Walton isn't somebody that Rondo or Beasley or McGee or, or any LeBron, any of the veterans on this team look up to, right? He's not a, an established figure in the world of basketball as a coach. And you're, he's not going to make them do, what he wants them to do by the force of his sheer will. You got to really bring it from a different perspective if that's the case. In order to, if you demonstrate your value, like, wow, this guy draws up some really good plays or has some great game plans, and I always see him working and grinding, and it, which isn't to say that Luke doesn't do that. I don't, I don't know Luke's work ethic or anything like that. But I feel like if you're a young coach coaching veterans, you really have to come through in those other areas when just the sheer force of your will isn't enough. No, and I certainly agree with that. I think that overall Luke has seemingly, not seemingly, like he is underwhelmed offensively. Let me ask you this. How good of a defensive coach do you think he is? Because obviously this year after Tyson Chandler stopped being effective and Lonzo right. got hurt. They stopped started yeah, playing they like started crap. Playing like yeah. crap defensively. But for pretty much... You know, 75% of last season, the Lakers were a pretty good to really good defensive team. And then for the first month and a half, almost two months of this season, they were a really good defensive team, at least in terms of comparative to the league, right? When, when, when we're talking defensive efficiency. 
And he was doing that with some rosters that probably shouldn't be good on defense. And and so was it smoke and mirrors? No, I don't think so. I think I think Luke's a good defensive coach. I think he's good to very good. Like if we're ranking the 30 and remember and my knowledge of Luke is way better than any other coach at this point, right? But my feel is that he's right on the border between the first third and the middle third in terms of, you know, 8 to 12 12th best defensive coach, yeah, you know, eight, yeah. between that range, right? And like I think that's by far the biggest strength. I thought he did a lot of uh, game planning stuff and put putting guys mostly in a position for them to succeed and get the best out of their defensive abilities. I actually think he's a pretty good defensive. Yeah, player. because the reason why I asked that too is is because even last season, you you know they they alternated between like a variety of coverages, and you and I actually complained about this some. Right, where it's just like you know they're not even doing the same thing from night to night. How can you get consistency and this, this, that, and the other? But you, you know, he had one group that was switching everything defensively, and then they were playing drop coverages with, with, with other defensive groupings. I think this year, uh, when he finally settled on playing a drop coverage with his two two big centers, that things started to fall into place the way that he wanted them to. Um, and then when the defense stars started to tank, I thought that he tried to change things up almost out of necessity because nothing was working. You you know, like, okay, well, you guys aren't going to rotate. Well, let's switch everything. Oh, we're getting... He got very desperate at the end yes, of the Yes, and oh, we're going to blitz at the point point, point of attack. We're going to hedge harder. We're going to trap. We're going to, right? Like, he's tried a bunch of different things, and none of it's worked because I honestly think the buy-in's not there more than anything else. Yeah, and, you know, and you're playing LeBron and Rondo together for, like, huge stretches. It's been, like, how did we get there? That That's how we got there. This is where, when when it comes to Luke... If I could do one or two things differently with Luke, one one would be like having like a veteran, really scheme savvy offensive mind coach on his on on his staff. Like in like in a perfect world, I feel like if Alvin Gentry didn't coach the Pelicans, like Gentry would be on Luke's staff. Yeah. You know, like a guy of that caliber, Gentry's gone to a Western Conference Finals. He's gone to, and then he was obviously Steve, like he, he did that as a head coach with the Suns. He was on a championship staff with Steve Kerr. A guy of that caliber who has been around the league for a long time and just sort of one of those NBA lifers or basketball lifers. It'd be great to have one one of those guys on on Walton's staff. And then the other thing is too, is so if I was in Luke's shoes, I would do that. And then if I could do something for Luke, it would be totally building and getting him players that I know sort of fit in the mold that he really wants to play with. I thought they got somewhat closer last season, but then this season totally diverged from it. And, and, and I think that that not only from like a skill wise standpoint, but but from a personality standpoint, I just don't think that this group was a good mix for him. And if he ends up taking the fall, which it looks like he will, but if he does, I just don't think it's going to be fair, right? Like it like it could end up being the right decision, or it could end up being justified. I just don't know if it's going to be fair. I think it's going to be fair. Okay. I think Luke has earned getting let go. Even accounting for all of the mistakes that the front office made, all of the difficult positions that they put him in, Luke did not demonstrate a resilience or enough of a plan for me to justify them keeping him around. He had to really step it up this year and rise to the occasion in terms of making something very different 
work, but also trying to get this team to stay together in a way that he wasn't capable of doing. And maybe most coaches wouldn't have been capable of doing it. And that's why I go back to the X's and O's stuff is if he had enough substance on that end, like he's a good defensive coach. He's not a great and irreplaceable defensive coach. And it's certainly not enough to make up for like a LeBron James team is going to finish in the bottom third of the NBA on the offensive end. I don't care how bad your roster is. Like you got to find a way for that not to happen. And he just didn't bring enough. Like it's not his fault. He's not the problem, but he is a problem. And the Lakers just, I I think need to go in another direction in order to move forward. I, I don't think he did enough to save his job all while putting that in the context of if he's the scapegoat and everyone's like, all right, well, everything's fixed because we fired Luke Walton. That would be absolutely awful. And, but that's where I'm at with him. Yeah, that's interesting. We can sort of, um, I definitely see your side. I'm just not all the way there. And that's fair. And that's fair. Well, I think we'll have uh, plenty of time to talk and give the eulogy for not just this season, but Luke Walton once it's concluded. So let's wrap this one up. Uh, You've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast, and we will catch you guys next time. Just give me a chance to think. It takes me a little while to get wound up. I know it does take you a while to think. Rebound to Vladi. Nice rebound to Vladi. Oh, magic ahead and shoulder fake. Goes under and scores. Passing ovation. Listen to the crowd. I think that is a cosmetic call, baby. Okay, kid, you're all right in my book. Will you get these idiots out of here? <laughs>